0: Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week's episode is all about neonatal jaundice. Our Dragon Bites host for the week is Mega Jagger, one of the paediatric registrars in Wales, and she's done a fantastic intro to it, so I'm just going to leave her to it. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees and anyone interested in child health. I am Megha, one of the paediatric trainees in Wales and also one of the presenters of Dragon Bites. This week, we have a neonatology talk on a very common topic of neonatal jaundice. I'm joined by Dr. Ola Yinka Kovabari, consultant neonatologist at Royal Stock University Hospital. Welcome Ola Yinka.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for coming in and joining us today. We are discussing one of the most commonly observed conditions in newborns today, that is neonatal jaundice. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, let's go. Lovely.
0: Um, I will start with the basics of neonatal jaundice. Um, Taking a common scenario in account, Let's say I am a neonatal SHO on the postnatal ward, reviewing the term baby on day two of life. What do I need to know about neonatal jaundice?
1: Okay, thank you. I suppose the first thing to understand is what jaundice in itself means. Um, So jaundice is a symptom and a sign, you could say, um, and it essentially just means yellowing and that's either yellowing of the skin or yellowing of mucous membranes. And it occurs because there is a high level of bilirubin in the blood. So understanding that helps us to look at why jaundice can occur and how we should look out for jaundice. So on the postnatal ward, um, seeing a baby who is term, otherwise well, we should be looking out for a baby that looks to us to be yellow, and that's either on the skin or in the eyes, which are the commonest places to look for jaundice.
0: Thank you. Um, now, coming to the risk factors of jaundice then, are there any risk factors or every baby gets neonatal jaundice?
1: That's an interesting question. So, um, if you think about the causes of jaundice then it helps us to look at what sort of babies are likely to have jaundice in general most babies will have some degree of high bilirubin in their blood at some point or the other in the first few days of life of that large cohort, a smaller percentage will have a level that is high enough to cause yellowing of the skin or of the eyes So those are the babies that we will identify as being jaundiced. And then a smaller percentage of that group will have a level that is significant enough to require some treatment. So essentially, um, all babies are at risk in that sense. So being a baby is a risk factor, and that is because most babies have a high level of red blood cells in their circulation. And their red blood cells contains fetal hemoglobin. And the half-life of fetal hemoglobin is quite short. So you're talking 10 to 20 days compared to the standard half-life of the um, normal hemoglobin in older children. So then we expect that red blood cells will break down in babies soon after they are born, because they don't need as much red blood cells as they needed in utero when they needed the red blood cells to attract oxygen from mom's own adult hemoglobin. So essentially, all babies are at risk. However, many of them will have some level of of bilirubin, but that isn't actually high enough to cause them to actually be jaundiced clinically. And of that group, a smaller group will have levels that is actually high enough to require treatment. So we are looking for the babies who look jaundiced to us. And then of that court, we want to check what the level is to identify the babies who need to be treated. So if we think a little bit about the things that can make the jaundice level high enough to require treatment, we are talking about conditions that mean that the red blood cells will break down even more, or conditions that mean that when the red blood cells have broken down, the hemoglobin that has now broken down into bilirubin is not being cleared fast enough from the blood. So you're thinking about anything that means that the flow of blood is a bit restricted, so babies who don't have enough fluids. You're thinking about babies who have some lag in the capacity of their liver to clear the bilirubin. So whether that is because physiologically they are just overwhelmed, so a lot more red blood cells are being broken down, and therefore a lot more hemoglobin needs to be processed to, to outweigh the capacity of their baby livers or whether that is because the liver in itself is inherently just not capable of that function, whether there isn't the uh, requisite enzymes, or whether the baby is just too unwell, or whether the function of the liver is suboptimal. So you are looking at a pathway, and any baby who has problems in that pathway will need jaundice treatment. When you think about babies, where the level of the... um, Where the red blood cells are breaking down a lot, beyond what you would consider normal for that age or for that baby, you're considering babies where the red blood cells have some problem or the other. So whether that's because the red blood cell is under attack from antibodies or whether that is because the red blood cell inherently doesn't have the membrane structure or the enzyme content to maintain its integrity. So the common one is when the red blood cell is under attack, when the red blood cell membrane is under attack from antibodies and the common antibodies are the ones that come from um, the ABO blood group, which we're all familiar with. And because it's a very common um, antibody, in in, in a, a very common blood group, in general, every person will have that blood group on some of their body cells. Therefore, most people are generally tolerant to antibodies from the ABO group. However, the other group that we will all be familiar with, the resource group, they tend to cause more problems with their own antibodies because those are not antibodies that our bodies are used to. So if a baby's red blood cell is exposed to resource antibodies, there is a higher chance that there will be difficult jaundice, as it were, compared with if it was an ABO antibody. So we've identified um, a number of groups now, groups where the red blood cell is breaking down more than is required, or groups where the liver is just not coping with the clearance of the bilirubin that has been produced. Thank you.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So it means that we can divide this jaundice into two big cohorts. One is physiological jaundice, that almost every baby gets a little bit of jaundice because their fetal hemoglobin is breaking down, versus the pathological jaundice where a baby gets excessive jaundice because of other things going on. For example, the ABO or RH incompatibility causing hemolysis, a liver disease. G6PD deficiency or enzyme deficiencies, etc. Is that correct now?
1: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. So, physiologic jaundice, as it were, is expected. And that's the whole concept of it being physiologic. It's expected. Um, it is just part of the body's process of trans- transiting from fetal life to being a baby. Um, it can be exaggerated. For instance, in situations where the baby is dehydrated. So the physiologic jaundice then becomes more clinically significant because it is more concentrated in the baby because they are dehydrated and the intravascular um, volume is contracted. The pathologic group that's the group where something else is on top of the physiologic jaundice, and that's the group we've described. Either there are problems with the enzymes, problems with the membranes of the red blood cells, problems with the function of the liver itself. And each of these different groups would present can present as early onset jaundice.
0: And coming to the early onset jaundice then, Am I correct in saying that that any jaundice developing in less than 24 hours of age is called
1: early jaundice? So, um, any jaundice that is visible in the first 24 hours of life is pathologic. The reason that we say this is because it is unlikely that the normal physiologic pathway of red blood cell breakdown and hemoglobin breakdown would cause jaundice to the extent that it would be high enough to show clinically so if you can identify jaundice in the first 24 hours of life in any baby you've got to ask yourself what else is happening here because that is likely to be beyond the extent of physiologic jaundice
0: Hmm. thank you now um If we see the baby who's on day two of their life, coming back to our scenario, and I see that the baby looks slightly jaundiced, um, what are the investigations I should be doing? And what should I be asking the parents with regards to history taking in jaundice on day two of life?
1: Wonderful. So with any other kind of assessments in medicine, Assessing any baby should always start with taking a history, examining the baby and then doing some investigations. So like you rightly pointed out, the questions that you should ask parents should include, what happened before? Have they had babies before? And did any of those babies have jaundice? That is important because it gives you an idea of whether you're dealing with a recurrent antibody interaction. Um, so, for instance, if a baby has had significant jaundice before in a previous pregnancy and they have identified that this was because of antibodies, either that is usually it's the resource antibodies or that is an, um, ABO incompatibility, or other less common antibodies, for instance, from autoimmune conditions. Say mommy has a hemolytic component to SLE, for instance. So that's important information. Has there been a previous baby that had jaundice? You want to know if there were risk factors that could predispose to infection in this baby. And that would be both congenital infections, so viral infections happening in pregnancy, or um, infections at the time of birth or just soon after birth and you're thinking more about bacterial infections in that setting this is because infections in general can lead to hemolytic disease and breakdown of red blood cells in the baby you also want to ask questions about the baby's well-being since birth so you're thinking about feeding and behavior and attitude? Is the baby waking up to feed? Is the baby crying appropriately? Are there any concerns that would suggest that the baby is unwell? We know that some metabolic conditions can predispose to jaundice as well. So, you know, you want to be sure that this is not a baby who's been very sleepy, not active, having difficulties with breathing and those kinds of things. Um, And you also want to know if there have been any problems in older babies in the family where there were identified metabolic problems. You also want to know um, what mom feels about the jaundice. When did she first notice it? Because the fact that you are noticing it on day two doesn't mean that's when it started. So you want to know when did she first notice it and how has that jaundice progressed? The reason that's important is because if jaundice is rapidly progressing, then the attitude to the treatment needs to be slightly different. So those are common questions that you want to ask. In examining the baby, of course, you want to see whether the baby is... Also pale, in addition to being jaundiced. That's important because it gives you an idea of whether there is excessive immolysis happening. You want to ask about the color of the baby's urine. Because if red blood cells are breaking down a lot, sometimes the urine can be a little bit dark. Also, if a baby has not been feeding well enough, the urine can be quite dark. You want to find out if the baby has been opening bowel, if we've had meconium passed yet. And that can be an indication of whether the baby is feeding well or not. But it can also be an indication that that the integrity of the gastrointestinal tract is, is intact from that point of view. You want to look at the baby's skin. Try to, you know, have a general idea of whether the baby is well or not, whether you're concerned that they're well or not. And then you do an abdominal examination and try to see if you can feel for a lever. This should not occur unless there is significant infections. And in general, this is associated with congenital infections. Membrane defects on red blood cells can cause Um, an enlarged spleen but it is unusual that this will present in the first few days of life and in fact in the first few months of life so you don't expect to see an enlarged spleen but of course if you saw one then you would be really worried that something very inappropriate is happening. Metabolic conditions can also cause an enlarged liver and we should be aware of that so in general you do a general examination And then you do a systemic examination. And then you go ahead to do some investigations. Of course, you want to know what the level of that jaundice is. Um, Guidance allows us to use what is called the transcutaneous bilinometer, which is a device that um, works on the principle of light to measure across the skin, the level of jaundice. It is not measuring the serum bilirubin. It is measuring the level of jaundice. And remember I said jaundice is the coloring, the yellow coloring. So it measures the level of jaundice on the skin. As you would imagine, that means that there is a margin of error And it is generally accepted that the margin is somewhere between plus and minus 50 nanomoles per litre, micromoles per litre, which is a big number and which actually is significant in terms of treatments. For that reason, there is guidance on which babies we can use the transcutaneous bilinometer on. Essentially, we want to use it on babies where the risk is low. So we don't want to use it on preterm babies because the integrity of their skin is slightly different, and the way that jaundice would appear on them is slightly different. So no babies less than 35 weeks of gestation. We don't want to use it if a baby has already had phototherapy before, and that's because there is some photoisomerization of, John, of bilirubin that light the phototherapy courses, and that can interfere with the way that the bilinometer will measure the jaundice. We also don't want to use it on babies who are acutely unwell because you don't want to confound your questions in that situation. So the baby has to be more than 35 weeks old, more than 24 hours of life, generally well babies and babies who have not had phototherapy before. So these are the babies that we would use the transcutaneous bilinometer on. There are lots of different brands of of this machine. Now, when a bilinometer has been used and you think that the level is somewhere in the region of 50 and um, below that um, of what you would be treating for jaundice. um, And essentially you would gauge that by plotting your number, the number that you have gotten on an appropriate um, um, bilirubin chart. And we can talk a little bit about that in a minute. Then once you know that that number is 50 and close, you should do a blood serum level of bilirubin. So you should check the serum level because that's a lot more accurate and is a lot more reliable. So these sort of babies and other babies in other categories, when you have done the bilirubin level in the serum, you get an absolute number and that number is fairly reliable so you should chart that number, just like the number from the transcutaneous bilinometer on the standard threshold graphs. In the UK, the NICE guidance directs us to the standard threshold um, graph according to NICE. And that's what we all use uniformly. The graph in itself is um, is a consensus one, you know, um, and it is over... Lots of observations of lots of babies. It is not, in that sense, very strongly evidence-based in the way that we refer to evidence. Evidence levels um, would come from, say, randomised control trials, for instance. But that is not something that we can afford in this group of babies, for the simple reason that what we worry about in jaundice or hyperbilirubinemia is neurotoxicity. So if the bilirubin level crosses a certain threshold and is high enough, it crosses the blood-brain barrier in these babies. It crosses it because the blood-brain barrier is not very mature yet. So if it does cross the blood-brain barrier, it causes significant damage to the brain and in particular to the basal ganglia. And this causes a typical kind of injury to the brain um, that is called kenicterus. Kenicterus is a form of cerebral palsy. And it is a significant neurotoxicity that causes lifelong disability. In fact, it can cause death. So if you think from that point of view, you understand how you cannot actually carry out randomized control trials in this kind of condition, in this group of babies, because of their vulnerability. So we have to rely on the evidence that we get from observations over the years. And it is this evidence that has been put together to create these treatment threshold graphs. There are lots of graphs across the world, but we rely on the NICE threshold graphs in the UK. And based on the graphs, there are thresholds to start phototherapy and thresholds to use intensive phototherapy and thresholds to do other things um, to treat the jaundice.
0: Thank you, very, very interesting. So I gather that we get these treatment threshold graphs from NICE and um, they are mostly consensus-based rather than strong evidence-based. Yes. And also that these treatment threshold graphs are based on the gestation of the baby. Is
1: that correct? Absolutely. So it's really important to plot the number that you get, whether that is from the transcutaneous bilinometer or that is from a blood sample. It is important that you plot that number on a gestation-appropriate graph, The reason is because the threshold for any baby at any gestation differs from other babies in another gestation and that threshold is important because it relies on the integrity of the blood-brain barrier while we do not want to treat babies unnecessarily we also want to ensure that we start to treat babies as early as it is required to protect the integrity of the brain. So you are correct. The treatment has to be, the the graph has to be a gestation appropriate one for that baby.
0: So this has given us the first line investigation. If we see a baby with jaundice, we first try and do transcutaneous bilirubin check if it is appropriate for that baby, depending on the gestation of the baby, Oh, there is one question, though. Does transcutaneous bilirubin reading uh, get affected by the colour of the baby
1: or ethnicity of the baby? That's interesting. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of um, evidence around this. But if you think about the mode, you know, how it works, it works by the transmission of light across skin, And um, it is because it measures jaundice, not quite the bilirubin level in the blood. So you you could imagine that there might be some um, bias for darker skin babies and that actually the variations might be real. But we don't have a lot of evidence in that area. But that is something to consider. If in doubt... Obviously, the gold standard is to do a blood test. Um, If you see a dark-skinned baby, for instance, whose sclera is quite yellow, but you do the transcutaneous bilinometer and it doesn't seem to be representative, the sensible thing to do would be to send a blood sample and to check what the actual serum bilirubin level is. Thank you.
0: So we have done the first line investigation of checking the serum bilirubin level on that baby who's day two of life and we have plotted it on the term treatment threshold graph and we can see that it is 45 above the treatment line.
1: Okay, so um, the, the other things to consider when you are doing the investigations is to ask yourself if this jaundice is purely physiological, or if this jaundice has some other pathologic basis. And so part of the first line investigations should be a full blood count and a blood film to check for anemia, to ensure that you don't have indications of infection with the white blood cell counts, and also to do a blood group and DCT. That is important because that helps us to know um, if there is a risk of Um, ABO incompatibility in this baby. As standard, these tests incorporate with them the resource status of the baby and um, it helps us to know if we should be worried about resource incompatibility. Um, Of course, you need the information about mom's own blood group and mom's own resource status as well. So once you've gotten this information and you now know that the jaundice level is at the bilirubin level is above the treatment threshold and we're talking specifically at this time about the phototherapy threshold then that baby needs to start phototherapy immediately Um, and there are different considerations for what kind of phototherapy the baby should have most centers will have a uniform kind in their own center and some centers will have more than one kind of phototherapy um, treatment option. There are options that include overhead lights, um, and there are options that are isolated. There are options that use what we call billy blankets, and there are options that use other kinds of fiber optic um, blankets. The important thing is that it has to be an option that provides white or blue lights in general, other kinds of lights. Some places use green and turquoise. Green because, you know, it is felt that green probably penetrates the skin better. But essentially, you want light within the spectrum of 450 to 490 nanometers. And in general, white and blue light fall in that category. So most places use white and blue light. And it could be overhead, it could be a fiber optic blanket of whatever kind, depending on what the center has purchased. So the whole aim is to expose this baby's skin as much of this baby's skin as you can reasonably get expose that to the light what we are aiming to do is to convert the bilirubin that is within the skin into a photoisomer that is easily dissolved in the water component of blood so essentially you want to help the liver to do its job So instead of waiting for the liver to have to clear all of this bilirubin and conjugate it and convert it by itself, you want to convert a bit of that bilirubin into photoisomers that are more water soluble so that these can then transport into the circulation and be cleared by the liver and the kidney. So essentially, the bilirubin gets cleared faster. That's the whole uh, mechanism of phototherapy light. Um, I will talk a little bit now about other adjuncts of treatment. As you can imagine, if the baby is dehydrated, meaning that the blood is quite concentrated, then you don't quite get as good a clearance of the, you know, water soluble isomer of bilirubin as you would have so you want to ensure that this baby is feeding well so a sensible pragmatic feeding plan is really important in this sort of situation we know that babies who are dry will have an exaggeration of their physiologic jaundice and in fact even when they're on treatment it takes a lot longer to clear that jaundice So it is important that a good feeding plan is in place. Ensure that the baby is able to open bowel that's important because if the baby cannot open bowel, they, they, they are more unwell than we thought, um, and we should be thinking about other problems, but also because then they can't quite clear the jaundice. And somehow, the, the bilirubin that has been converted goes back through what we call the enterohepatic circulation and goes back into circulation and makes the baby even more jaundiced. So it is important. By virtue of the enterohepatic circulation, actually, good feeds also enhance clearance of jaundice, whether or not there is phototherapy. So we should utilize that physiologic pathway as well. Of course, the other thing to ask yourself is, are there suggestions of infection, in which case you should treat as an adjunct to your treatment of phototherapy, but also as an important clinical entity to treat for that baby? Okay,
0: thank you. So that Gives us an idea about starting the treatment with phototherapy and making sure the baby is being fed well, baby is having good wet nappies and pooey nappies, and also always to keep in the back of mind other causes of jaundice, for example, infection. Absolutely. This seems a sensible place to stop the episode for now. I just want to say thank you to Ola Yinka and to Mega for recording the episode for us. We'll finish the episode off next week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.